This is Andy Steiger. Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners. Good to have you with us for another edition of the AC Podcast. Looking forward to jumping into our topic today. We're going to be speaking on the subject of eugenics and looking at uh, some tweets by Richard Dawkins and others. Uh, Before we get into that, though, just want to take a moment uh, to let you know that we have the Human Project for Kids podcast. We have season two that's going to be launching shortly by the end of the month. it is February currently, so by the beginning of March, that should come out. We're going to direct you to that. If you have kids, it's a great resource. As well, we want to ask you to consider going to iTunes or whatever device it is that you're listening to us through. And if there is a possibility of giving us a rating, we would sure appreciate it, as it helps us to be able to reach more people. Well, Wesley, it's good to have you on the AC Podcast. I don't know that you and I have ever just done a podcast together, but uh, good to be with you and looking forward to this. Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a, a first time. Now, for those of you who are are maybe new to listening to the show or if you're unfamiliar with Wesley, Wesley is a PhD student out at the University of Toronto. So obviously he's living in Toronto. Now, Wesley, you're going to be speaking at the Apologetics Canada Conference coming up here in March. Uh, What subjects are you going to be speaking on at the conference? Yeah, I'm going to touch on a number of subjects that have to do with the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, and um, how we go from letters and and books written 2,000 years ago to what we have now. And I'm really looking forward to digging into some of those topics, getting getting some of those conversations going. I I think it'll be uh, fun and educational. And then... uh, We've, we've got a couple of other uh, things going beforehand at Columbia Bible College and at Northview Community Church there. So Let's mention that real quick. That is called the Inspired AC Lecture Series. You can uh, sign up for that. It is free. Uh, Wesley is going to start the morning off uh, speaking on, I believe, how did we get the Bible? And then in the evening at uh, Columbia Bible College, he's going to be addressing the question of, can we trust the Bible? I'm really looking forward to this lecture series. Yeah, I think I think it'll be really great. I, I think there have been a, a number of even instances uh, lately in the media that have brought up some questions about uh, the books of the Bible and uh, the reliability of the Bible. So I'm I'm really looking forward to digging into those and, and sharing some of the uh, some of the confidence that we have as believers. Awesome. Well, let's jump into things here, uh, Wesley. The other day you messaged me with a tweet that Richard Dawkins sent on February 15th. Let's talk about this because it's definitely been getting a lot of interaction and thankfully not all of it is positive. Yeah, it was interesting. I opened up Twitter and eugenics was trending, um, which is a funny thing to trend. Uh, so I, I dug a little bit into that and found, yeah, our, our good atheist friend Richard Dawkins uh, going on some interesting tangents about genetic modification and eugenics. Now, let me, I'll read the tweet here. So, this is what Richard Dawkins wrote. 
It's one thing to deplore eugenics on ideological, political, moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Of course it would. It works for cows, horses, pigs, dogs, and roses. Why on earth wouldn't it work for humans? Facts ignore ideology. Now, doing a little bit of digging, is Richard responding to something else? I believe that there's an article that came out of somebody who lost their job that kind of got this whole thing started. Yeah, so it seems like this tweet had some background that was really lost if you just read it. It seemed sort of strange conversation to just float in the air, especially for a, a tweet conversation. So if you did a little bit more digging, what you found out that what he's probably talking about, I don't know 100% for sure, but there has been some issues in um, over in the UK with an individual named Andrew Sabisky, who was appointed as the aide to Dominique Cousins, who was the aide to Boris Johnson. So it's kind of like an aide to an aide. And after that appointment, the media dug up some of his sort of statements that he had said that he published on social media and some other places that came to the surface. Uh, particularly back in 2014, Sibisky made some comments about ideas to curb unplanned pregnancy and he, he hypothesized that illegal enforcement of long-term contraception to, and the quote was, avoid creating a permanent underclass was a, a plausible solution. In other words, sterilizing the poor. <laughs> he supported sterilizing the poor. And then uh, he had a couple of other tweets that, that were a little bit controversial. Uh, he said eugenics are about selecting for good things. Intelligence is largely inherited and it correlates with better outcomes, physical health outcomes, lower mental health issues. He made some comments about uh, race, about some races particularly having a genetically lower IQs. And then uh, to top it all off, there was a tweet that said, uh, I'm always straight up in saying that women's sport is more comparable to the Paralympics than to the men's. So, you know, I think there was some um, some outrage that was warranted in this, but particularly what, what Dawkins is capitalizing on are those comments about eugenics about what he's saying there in terms of avoiding certain genetic, intellectual, uh, physical pitfalls by selective breeding, uh, that kind of thing, making sure certain people don't breed and other people do. I think it might actually be important to define eugenics. I was just thinking that myself. I'm thinking we should probably just take a moment to define eugenics, maybe give a little bit of a historical background uh, as to where this came. I think people might find this fascinating. The word eugenics is a Greek word meaning well-born. And it's a, it's a word that came from a guy named Francis Galton in the UK. And one of the things that he uh, advocated for was the idea for well-born families. And he advocated for the arranging of genetically advantageous marriages so that you could get these, what he called a gifted offspring. Now, it might surprise some listeners to know that, you know, these ideas, although they didn't take root in Britain, they did in the United States. And so you have these eugenic programs, such as sterilization of, quote, undesirable people that would include immigrants, 
criminals, Native Americans, people of color, the poor, unmarried mothers, the disabled, and the mentally ill. And so, those ideas, though, just to give a little bit more history, those ideas then would ultimately inspire Adolf Hitler. In fact, from Hitler, something that he told to a colleague, uh, so, you know, given this idea of seeing what was going on in the United States, he said, quote, I have studied with great interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. And then it was only a few years later, uh, after saying this, that his interest turned into action. And one of the first laws he passed gaining control of Germany in 1933 was a compulsory sterilization law in which doctors were required to report to the state all individuals deemed genetically unfit. So, that gives maybe a little bit of background as to where eugenics has, has gone. Now, one thing, though, that I find a lot of people are unfamiliar with, though, when we get into conversations of eugenics, is the birthplace, though, of eugenics really isn't with Francis Galton. The birthplace goes to Darwin. And in fact, Francis Galton is Darwin's half-cousin. In the idea of evolution, so evolution really became the foundation that this idea sprang from. And you see this when you read Darwin's book, The Descent of Man. And in that book, one of the things that Darwin writes is he calls Europeans the summit of civilization and says that they immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors. And so, you get this idea that there are some races that are more well-born, right? This idea of eugenics, that they, they are a better racial stock than other races. And in fact, this idea of eugenics, especially when evolution first started gaining popularity, eugenics and evolution went hand in hand, so much so that in the early days, these two were not separate as they are today. And this is one aspect of the evolution debate that I find has really been lost in recent times, is just the natural outflow of eugenics that follows from these ideas of selection and that there is some genetic advantage and, and so, this would naturally play out then in, you know, whether that be within, uh, within a race or within races. For example, you have the Scopes Monkey Trial is something that I've mentioned before on the show that when you go back and look at this, that this was one of the aspects of that case that's really been lost from history is, is that the textbook that was being used at that time in the high school, and, and, and you have Christians that were upset about this, is, is the textbook is quite explicit about Europeans being the height of civilization and this idea that, you know, there are some races that are better than other races and then being quite explicit about which ones those are. Yeah, I think that's a good connection to make there, Andy. If Darwin dictated that the fittest would survive, I think eugenics dictates that the strong should survive. Darwin didn't invent the phrase survival of the fittest. That was philosopher and biologist Herbert Spencer. But he did so after reading 
Darwin's origin of species and then applying it to sociology. So I, I agree with you. There's a, there's a very straight line from a Darwinian worldview perspective straight to some of these ideas of race and ethnicity and uh, certain individuals uh, being above others in a very problematic way. And guys like Darwin, Dawkins and Spencer, they're all basically saying the place where we derive our shoulds is the biological realm, in which case the fittest should survive. And unless you have a heaven to forbid it, which is, I thought it was funny in Richard Dawkins's tweet, he said in one of the threads, uh, he said, for those who, who are determined to miss the point, I deplore the idea of a eugenic policy. I simply said deploring it doesn't mean it wouldn't work. I'm not sure how you're not encouraging it <laughs> when you say that. I, I know. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, hey, so what's the, what's the difference there? Yeah. And he says, just as we breed cows to yield milk, we could breed humans to run faster or jump higher. And then he finishes it with this funny sentence, but heaven forbid that we should do it. Wait a minute. Why? If it's better. And, and that's what I was thinking of when I said like, unless we have a heaven to forbid it, there really is no reason to not let that type of action take its course. And the, the problem really is that Dawkins doesn't have a head, heaven to forbid it. <laughs> He's effectively ruled out such an option. And so it was a very weird Twitter thread. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying that it would actually work, guys. I don't want you to get the wrong idea that I'm saying we should stop certain people from breeding or we we should or shouldn't genetically alter people like we do cows to yield more milk but you know i just want you to know it would work like almost it's almost a strange thing to even include but uh, backtracking a little bit there was this tweet that i screenshotted it years ago and still have it from 2014 where dawkins is going back and forth in something that he's posted, uh, particularly about Down syndrome. And one of, one of these people who's commenting on his tweet uh, says, I honestly don't know what I would do if I were pregnant with a kid with Down syndrome. Real ethical dilemma. And Richard Dawkins' response is, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. I mean, that's for all intents and purposes, that's eugenics. That is a sort of weeding out of a particular genetic problem that Dawkins sees as inferior. Don't you think so? That tweet, I remember that, Wesley. That one got him into uh, a lot of hot water, no question about it. Now, that question of Down syndrome can be a challenging one to think through. And I've thought through these different ideas. Okay, what about these genetic abnormalities? So take, for example, that my niece, Matlin, has cerebral palsy. So this is where I find that eugenics creates for some challenging questions and dialogue. So for example, you know, my niece would rather not have cerebral palsy, as an example. Now, I know that the Down syndrome, where you've got an extra chromosome, if I understand correctly, I'm, it's not an area of expertise for me, but that raises these sorts of questions where, okay, if you could, you know, if we could 
stop Down syndrome, for example, uh, would we? Uh, if you could make sure that, you know, an extra chromosome doesn't take place. Or to change it slightly with, say, Matlin, if you could stop cerebral palsy, would you? Now, so I guess one of the things I'm throwing back there, Wesley, is one of, it seems like one of the things that we've got to think through is how do we respect the human being and their dignity? And yet at the same time, how do we understand things like blindness, to throw another one in there, right? Mm. That yes, that human being has dignity and worth and value, even though they're blind or they have cerebral palsy or they have Down syndrome. Yet it raises in these other questions, but, but what do we do about those things? Does that mean that we just leave somebody blind or we leave somebody with cerebral palsy? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a complicated issue with the physicality aspect and, and the moral dilemma that goes into that. Because you, you want to not downplay the fact that these people are, are seriously struggling uh, mentally and physically and, and so on. And yet at the same time, not invalidate their, their human worth. I mean, the Down syndrome one is an interesting one because about five years ago in Iceland, they started to make a compulsory non-invasive test for Down syndrome. There were some interesting headlines that came out in 2017 that basically said that almost making it sound like they'd cured Down syndrome, that close to 100% of unborn babies diagnosed with Down syndrome, it, there was no one, there is no one under the age of five in Iceland who has Down syndrome. But they, they hadn't found a cure, uh, they just eliminated children with Down syndrome. It was a compulsory that if during this test you found Down syndrome, uh, they would they would just abort the child. And, and, and that is problematic, right? Because they want to call that, you know, curing it. But this is what I'm getting at. Is this, this is the challenge is because you have a child, mm-hmm. right? So, so, you've got this child who has Down syndrome and now they're being devalued that their life is, is yeah. not worth living where we would say absolutely not that they do have dignity they are 100% a human being mm-hmm. and they should be valued however i think that one of the things that we have to be careful of is just like somebody with you know cerebral palsy or you know blindness going back to these other things that doesn't mean that we wouldn't necessarily want to cure those sorts of things because i mean there are so take down syndrome for example they have way lower life expectancy, for example, and there are challenges that come with that. Uh, same thing with my niece, Matlin, who has cerebral palsy, and her and I have talked about this. And she's like, man, you know, if I could take a pill and get rid of cerebral palsy, she's like, absolutely, I'd do that. She's like, I'd love to know what it's like to run and jump and to ride a bike and those sorts of things. I would want that. So, that to me is where, you know, where this challenge can get difficult to, to appreciate is that that there are these abnormalities that take place. And, and I don't think that we should celebrate abnormalities, like blindness, for example. You know, Jesus cured people with blindness. But yet at the same time, we have to see that their life is 100% human and, and that they have 100% dignity as a human being. Now, I know I'm talking about these kind of, we're, we're talking about these bigger ideas, that are very easy to pinpoint. The challenge is, though, and this is the slippery slope of eugenics, is that 
it it just becomes more and more difficult to be able to set off these you know points of demarcation though once you start to go down this route of eugenics right that some lives are more valuable than others that there are certain abnormalities or whatever that all of a sudden would make your life less valuable and this just becomes a slippery slope where you begin to ask well who says that their life is less valuable and who gets to decide what those are because i mean i have talked with people that have cerebral palsy and i've talked with people that that are blind and i guess that's maybe why i'm bringing those ones up is because I've had interactions with those people that just tell me how often they feel like second-class citizens in our society because those sorts of things. Uh, so, think about that. For example, if you have Down syndrome or if you have cerebral palsy or something like that, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're living your life, but you feel as though you shouldn't be alive, right? Because you got people who are saying, oh, if you have a child, uh, you know, a fetus like this or a child like this, you should abort it. And then you can imagine how that plays on somebody's psyche is they're thinking, oh man, like my life isn't worth living. I should have been aborted. I one time, and I've shared this story before, but I was one time speaking at a university and after a talk I gave on human dignity, this this blind girl comes to talk with me afterwards and she's, she's just crying. And this is one of the things that she shared with me. She just said, man, I just so often feel like I'm not welcome here. And I, I think this is one of those aspects that a lot of people don't think about with regards to this. But then, just to finish this thought with regards to the slippery slope of this is, well, you know, well, who gets to say, you know, what these sorts of things are? Because, I mean, take, for example, myself, male pattern baldness, right? The baldness in my genes is strong. I can tell you that from my grandfather, father to me, right? And, and some people would say, well, that's not an ideal, you know, human being. Although these days... God bless The Rock and other actors that are making baldness cool again. Uh, but, you know, there's there's others that would be like, no, you know, a, a better human, right? A more well-born human would have thick, you know, luscious hair like Brad Pitt or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good word to uh, speak into this situation um, because I, I think it's the exact foundation that we have within the Judeo-Christian worldview of all humanity being created equal and in the image of God and, and therefore they have intrinsic worth, not extrinsic worth in terms of what they can contribute to society, uh, but intrinsic worth by being an image bearer. And then on top of that, I think that when we get to the, the New Testament, um, that's even capitalized on more when God himself steps out of the paradise of eternity and into the broken humanity taking on flesh. And I think it's the exact same foundation that we say all people have human worth that gives us the merit to say we should pursue making these people's lives better. We should pursue cures. We should pursue things that, that help their elements. And I think if you look throughout Christian history, that's exactly what we see. I mean, some of the, the very first hospitals, um, the, the Cappadocian fathers and some of the individuals within Augustine's time period who are doing things like starting the first hospitals to lepers, taking care of not just their own poor, but also the poor of people who adhere to pagan religions. And it's this foundation that I think is not just I think, I think we can prove is unique to Christianity that gives us a fundamental grounding for saying 
we should pursue the flourishing of all of humanity because all of humanity are beautifully created in that image of God and so therefore have worth just by existing. And for for Dawkins to, you know, sort of speak through both ends of his mouth and say, you know, I don't think we should do this, but but by the way, it would work. You know, we could cure your male pattern baldness, Andy. We, we could cure, <laughs> you know, the fact that uh, my hearing is terrible. We could get rid of all of these minor issues, both small and big. And yet we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that because obviously we all know that that's morally reprehensible. To be specific with what you're talking about is we shouldn't do that through selection. Right. So, this, this is this idea then of the, the eugenics model is don't breed. So, for example, so this would cash out for you and I. Well, that, you know, Wesley and Andy shouldn't have children so that they don't pass on their bad hearing or their baldness in their genetic line. Mm-hmm. And then really only, you know, those people, and that, this becomes a, the challenge, you know, those people are the ones then that should breed. And I, I love what Joanne, somebody that was responding to Dawkins uh, right. She says, the thing about people who believe in eugenics is that they always believe themselves to be the superior kind of human. <laughs> and, and, and this really becomes, again, that challenge. What are those points of demarcation that we're going to say, okay, that's a superior kind of human? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a good thing to point out. If we have these ideas of fixing someone by either eliminating them or selective breeding or whatever. Well, as you said before, you know, who is making that decision? And then who are we saying, well, this is the standard? Is that, you know, a master race, dare I say, that we're trying to create? Because that was that was sort of the scientific endeavor of the Nazis. And you really, you really go down a, a very problematic and complicated road once you start opening up those doors. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. And, and the challenge with this, and I think this is one of the reasons why we need to talk about this, is we can't forget that this isn't a road that we've already been down. We, we've gone down this road and we've seen where it goes and the ugliness of the human heart that comes out when we've gone down this road, this is what concerns me, though, when I see tweets by people like Dawkins that will say something like this. And, and sadly, he's not alone. There are others that, as I would see it, are testing the water. 
Uh, and so I'm kind of, I'm quite glad that he has received so much pushback. Now there's others though that have been testing the water though that I I'm very surprised as I've read books for example by Yuval Harari that that he hasn't received more pushback than he has. Now let me give you just a, a quote. This quote comes from his book Homo Deus, and he writes. The horrors of Nazism should not blind us to whatever insight evolutionary humanism might offer. Nazism was born from the pairing of evolutionary humanism with particular racial theories and ultra-nationalistic emotions. Not all evolutionary humanists are racist, and not every belief in mankind's potential for further evolution necessarily calls for setting up police states and concentration camps. Auschwitz should serve as a blood-red warning sign rather than as a black curtain that hides entire sections of the human horizon. Evolutionary humanism played an important part in the shaping of modern culture and is likely to play an even greater role in the shaping of the 21st century. One of the things that I see in in quotes like this, and as I've read Harari speaking on the subject of eugenics, is this naive idea that although we didn't get it right in the past, that somehow we can get this right uh, in the future. Yeah, and and I think that's what I was trying to describe when before when I said that you know if if uh, Darwin dictated that the fittest would survive, eugenics dictates that the strong should survive. The complicatedness of individuals like Harari who who want to say, yeah, not not that he wants to say that you know we should encourage those types of behaviors, but but that if we're consistent within our methodology that, you know, we can encourage, we can pursue a scientific method uh, through them. And, and that's really problematic. And it, it begs the question, you know, what do we mean when we talk about human rights? What do we talk, what do we mean when we talk about human worth? That isn't something that's necessarily intrinsic. And, and Yuval Harari uh, did a, t- a TED talk uh, a few years ago, where he, he basically says that. He says, you know, you open up a human, and well, what will you find? Well, you'll find, you know, you'll find organs and neurons and muscle, sinew, and fat. Uh, where, where's the human rights? Well, that's just something we make up, he says. And so it begs the question, well, then who gets to dictate who gets those rights and who qualifies as a human? Um, these are some some very concerning conclusions, some very concerning statements, which really guys like Dawkins, as much as he wants to give lip service and say, you know, no, no, we shouldn't do these things, but I'm not saying they wouldn't work. I mean, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, Wesley. This is, this is one of the challenges is that you have to think about, okay, what is the worldview that they're operating from? Now, we have this past history where we see eugenics going horribly wrong. And then, you know, in light of what took place, you have things like the Universal Declaration for Human Rights that come out right after World War II that say, no, listen, all humans have inherent dignity, you know, in equality, in inalienable rights, right? These rights that can't be taken away from you. The, the challenge is, though, 
is you've got people in our culture like Dawkins and Harari that say, well, actually, that's not the case. You know, as lovely as the UDHR is, that's actually just a story, they would say. That's this mythology that we've created, but it isn't actually the case. And, and here's actually a quote, again, from Harari. Now, this is from his book, Sapiens. He writes... As far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan, and if planet Earth were to blow up tomorrow morning, the universe would probably keep on going about its business as usual. Hence, any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just a delusion." And, and so, you, you'll get the same sort of idea being argued with regards to things like human dignity. Listen, you know, they'll say, and, and Harari does, like in that TED Talk, for example, that you pointed out, they listen, you know, this, this whole thing about dignity, that's just a story we've told, but there's no grounding for that story. And that's where things like the UDHR can become problematic, is there isn't this grounding for that document that, as you mentioned, Wesley, that we do have for Christianity. So, we do have a grounding as Christians when we come up against these issues where we say, no, humans do have dignity, and that that dignity is driving my worldview. But if you've got a whole, you know, section of culture that's just plain pretend, it becomes quite problematic to ask, well, when is our culture going to stop playing pretend? Yeah, it's really assuming a Christian worldview at, at a certain point. Um, well, Harari will say that. He'll, yeah. he'll, ab- he'll absolutely point to Christianity and say, listen, I can tell you where the story came from. It came from Christianity. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, Harari is very honest with that. I think a lot of people, especially who I talk to on the university campus, they assume these things without understanding where they come from. Um, the historian uh, Tom Holland um, not the guy who plays Spider-Man, Tom Holland, but the the historian Tom Holland. <laughs> I appreciate you pointing that out. <laughs> um, not, to, not to confuse any of the listeners. He actually talks about, uh, you know, th- this is the water we swim in. We're so engulfed in particularly the West, but the modern world in general, with Judeo-Christian values and ideas that we assume that everybody should have human rights. And so you get the UN's Declaration of Human Rights. But what Tom Holland as a historian points out is he says, no, no, that's that's not self-evident, especially throughout history. It wasn't self-evident in the ancient Near East. You look at some of the um, Mesopotamian law codes, things like the Hammurabi Code, and you know the king is at the top and the slaves are at the bottom and there is a hierarchy. And if you were to talk to a Roman soldier in Jesus's day and point at a beggar on the road and, and then point at the centurion and say, hey, he has just as much value as you, he would say, no, he doesn't. What are you talking about? He obviously doesn't have as much human value as I do. I'm far above him. And I mean, both Plato and Aristotle uh, wrote and talked about humans being tools and you use these tools and they use that as a justification for slavery. And so these sort of self-evident truths that, you know, everyone from the, the lowest to the highest, they all have the same standing as a human being. This is inherently Christian. And uh, individuals like Harari uh, are honest with that fact, but a lot of people aren't, um, especially in a day where we're, we're very concerned with oppression and, and justice and, uh, you know, fighting for the marginalized. I think all of those things are good, but at a certain point, it assumes 
the Judeo-Christian worldview in order to even make the argument to begin with. I think it's an important point that we need to uh, appreciate that this idea of eugenics has a long history. It, it goes back even before evolution. I think you could maybe just say that evolution gave it you know, some scientific grounding, if you will. But that these things go, go back even further. I even think of the Victorian worldview as well that people like Dickens was writing into and challenging. Uh, and it's interesting when you begin to read Dickens, by the way, with that view towards the worldview that he was living in, the worldview he was challenging. And his, I find that his writing really takes on a, a, a new color. But yeah, I think it's easy for us in that to forget that, you know, here you have this Christian worldview that is, that is challenging that. It's constantly coming up against us and challenging it. Now, I don't want to pretend that Christians have always gotten it right. There have been plenty of, of times that people, will, we could say, have called themselves Christians, have not behaved Christianly. And we can even see that particularly in our own history here in Canada with what's happened with our own um, indigenous peoples, that, that they have been treated in horrific ways and viewed as less than human that really uh, drove the residential school system to get rid of um, Indian problem, I believe, is, is how it was worded. So, and you see the church, you know, participating with, with the state in this. But, but that doesn't mean when, in those times of history where Christians have, or, you know, that the church has gotten it wrong, that, that this is what Christianity is about, or that this is what Jesus was teaching. I do find it quite fascinating, by the way, uh, here's an interesting comparison that you'll have historically at the exact same time virtually where you've got what's happening in Canada with the residential school system. You have what was taking place in the Congo under King Leopold II in the horrific conditions. Uh, by the way, a death toll once Leopold II was done that was on par with the Holocaust. And you've got, a, you've got a minister in one case that George Williams that is so disturbed by what he's hearing from the Congo that he goes to the Congo uh, against King Leopold II's wishes and begins to write out against the atrocities that he's witnessing there. And in fact, he's the one who coins the term crimes against humanity that would get picked up again uh, after World War II. And it's because of the work of this minister that it ultimately cost him his life. He, he died on his return ver voyage. But it was, it was his work that stopped the dehumanization that was taking place in the Congo. But yet, at that exact same time, right, you know, you've got this dehumanization that was taking place over in Canada. And, and so, it's this, this interesting tension where there have been these moments in history that we can point to so many of them where Christians have gotten it right and have been at the leading front of stopping dehumanization. But again, I think we have to be honest that there's moments where Christians have gotten it wrong. But I think that it's important to point out that when they have gotten it wrong, it's often been, you see this even with Martin Luther and others, that it's often been Christians who have been the first to challenge the church, that they are getting it wrong. It was interesting, even when you look at the history of Martin Luther and just his anti-Semitism, it was his best friends that were challenging him, saying, you can't talk like this. Uh, and, and we're the ones pushing back on him. And so, I, I just wanted to 
I don't think that we can paint too rosy of a picture that we've always gotten it right. Although I would argue that we have been on the forefront and there's been times that we've had to get back on that, that right track and make sure that we're continuing on it. Because as we go along, as culture challenges us in unique ways, it can be difficult to stay on that path of human value, human dignity, made in the image of God and putting those important theologies into practice. And I think that's a, an important note to uh, keep in mind in that our faith is not grounded in the church. Our faith is not grounded in celebrity Christians or, or uh, even heroes of the faith throughout history. Our faith is grounded in Christ. And, you know, you look at a, a passage like uh, Paul mentions both in Galatians 3 and in Colossians 3, uh, this sort of refrain that in Christ there is no, and then he goes on this list, Jew nor Greek, there's no uh, slave nor free, there's no male nor female. And then in, in the Colossians passage, uh, Colossians 3.11, he also mentions barbarians and Scythians. So he sort of covers his bases in terms of social status, the gender or sex, ethnicity, and social standing. and And the fact that when we come to the table, when we're grounded in Christ, uh, despite, as you've said, Andy, some of the atrocities that individual Christians or groups of Christians have done, when we all come to the table, when we all come in fellowship, when we're grounded in the gospel message, uh, these differences don't disappear in the sense that, you know, you still have men and women sitting at the table, but we're all equal in value, which I think would have been an interesting thing, especially in some of these early church communities that Paul is speaking into, because, you know, you could have a, a slave who is an elder in a church and the master who is a, a congregant in the church. There's an aspect of they would have to submit. And that would have been strange at best, um, revolutionary at worst. And yet, the gospel, it changes this whole dynamic. Tom Holland has this, uh, it's not a direct quote, I'm paraphrasing here, but he has this interesting refrain where he talks about, once again, the survival of the fittest. And he says, you know, if you look at every worldview, ancient or modern, the idea of the survival of the fittest is there to some degree. But in Christianity, what's unique is that the fittest he steps down, he sacrifices himself for the survival of the weakest. And that is what changes the narrative, is that you have an acknowledgement, as we've said, that all humans have intrinsic dignity and worth, but the whole narrative is spun on its head in the sense that the only one who is the fittest, you know, the sinless son of God, he sacrifices himself for the survival of the weakest. And the gospel, despite all of, as you've said, Andy, uh, some of the the shortcomings and even the atrocities of individuals who have claimed the name of Christ. If we ground ourselves in Christ, if we use him as the example, if he is the author and perfecter of our faith, it really changes the whole dynamic in these sorts of discussions. I think that's absolutely right. There's this interesting interaction that Jesus has that, you know, is well known with the parable of the Good Samaritan. What a lot of people don't appreciate, though, is how much this dialogue is taking place between dehumanization and human dignity within this conversation, particularly given that Samaritans were referred to as half-breeds and treated as such, where they were 
Jews wouldn't even walk through their land. They wouldn't eat with these people. They wouldn't talk with these people. And this sets up this conversation where Jesus is talking with this teacher of the law who, who asks him, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's a question a number of people ask Jesus in the Gospels. And Jesus asks him, well, what's written? And the man replies, and I'm sure this is probably something that he's been hearing Jesus say. This is a reply Jesus has given a number of times as he uh, puts together Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 together and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Where things get interesting is that Jesus says, yeah, you, you know, you've answered correctly, you know, do this and, and you'll live. But it says, but the man wanted to justify himself and asked, and who's my neighbor? And this really gets at the heart of the problem, I think, Wesley, is that, you know, you've got the Bible and it's, and it's teaching us about human dignity and it's teaching us about the way that God views people and that God's even willing to send his son to die for us. I mean, demonstrating the ultimate level of human value uh, on the cross. Yet, we as humans are broken and, and we're evil and we seek to justify ourselves and ask questions like, who's my neighbor? In other words, who do I need to love? Mm. This is something that, that I think we have to wrestle with is that, you know, when we think about things like eugenics, we have to come to grips with the fact that I'm broken, I'm evil. And I will ask these sorts of questions of who's my neighbor, right? Who do I have to love? Because, I mean... You know, surely, you know, this this story of the Good Samaritan isn't coming out of a vacuum. Jesus knows what's going on inside this man's heart. He knows what he's trying to justify. He understands who he doesn't want to love. And I think that this is ultimately why Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan is he makes, you know, the dehumanized, the, the villain, the hero, and he's challenging this guy's worldview, but ultimately it should challenge us. Who is that person that I devalue, that I'm trying to justify not loving? So, the gospel is, is constantly pushing against our bias and our brokenness and our desire to not love and challenging us in what it looks like to value human life. What does it look like to uphold human dignity in the midst of our broken society and, and to love all people and to realize that this is what we've been called to. And there's going to be moments where we're going to get it wrong, but we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to correct our distorted perspective and bring it back in alignment with the way God sees us as we continue to be salt and light in this world. And I would argue in the midst of all that, keeping a close eye on our past, making sure that our future doesn't make the same mistakes. Mm, definitely. Yeah, as you were speaking, uh, Andy, I was reminded of a quote by G.K. Chesterton, where he said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies. He says, probably because they're generally the same people. <laughs> and then he, he says, the Christian ideal then has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Amen. I think that that's a, this is a good place, I think, for us to end this conversation. Listeners, I, I hope that this has encouraged you. I would uh, implore you, though, that when you hear culture testing the waters, you know, that we need to be careful that we see what's going on and that we're careful as history tends to repeat itself, that we don't fall back into the same mistakes that we've made uh, in the past. This is an area I think that also as Christians that we have an important responsibility as we talk to a culture that doesn't have a foundation for meaning, purpose, and value, and that we are constantly 
giving a reason for those things. And again, I, obviously, this is a good place to be mentioning that we give an apologetic. We give a, an answer or a reason for human dignity. I did an event a couple of weeks ago at McMaster University on secularism uh, with a, a Muslim imam and a rabbi. And in my opening statement, which you can find on my, my YouTube channel, I talked about the emptiness of secularism to ground ideas of the transcendent, of purpose and meaning and morality and hope. And uh, so if you're curious uh, about that, there's a, uh, it's about 14 minutes. It's my opening statement on that. And you can find that on my YouTube account. And it, it, it talks a lot about uh, what we've, we've been going back and forth uh, about today. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we will come back next week with more things to think about. 